The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the fourth Doctor story, Underworld. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. And retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. And be sure to leave comments wherever you find it and let us know what you think of the show. We also want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network that you're sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Stargate, where we, uh, we discuss the great Stargate TV shows, mm-hmm. SG-1, Universe, and Atlantis. And uh, check it out. They're already into the second and third season of SG-1. There's yep. some great stuff coming. Definitely check it out wherever fine podcasts are found, or at sqpn.com slash stargate. But today we're talking about Underworld, which is a, like I said, a fourth Doctor story, which comes from the fourth Tom Baker season, so overall season 15 of Classic Who. And uh, Jimmy, can you give us a, a recap of what happens in Underworld? Easy peasy, straightforward story this time. The fourth Doctor and Leela encounter a spaceship with a group of astronauts from the planet Minyas, which has been dead for 100,000 years. It died because the Time Lords intervened on Minyas early in Time Lord history, and the resulting disaster led them to adopt their non-interference policy. These minions are searching for a lost sister ship that has two cylinders that contain the genetic heritage of their planet. They're on a 100,000-year quest to get the cylinders so they can restart their race on a new planet. But when they find the sister ship, it's at the center of a planet that is forming around it. When they get down to the ship, they find that the computer tasked with guarding the cylinders has gone crazy and enslaved the descendants of the original crew. The descendants now toil in rock binds at the center of the planet, the Underworld from the episode's title. The computer tries to trick the newly arrived astronauts by giving them two fission grenades instead of the genetic cylinders, but the doctor gets the real genetic cylinders and tricks the computer into accepting the fission grenades in return. The planet then blows up, and the astronauts and the former slaves ride the shockwave toward their new homeworld. The end. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, So... I I was reading online, it said uh, that this is a Jason and the Quest for the Golden Fleece allegory. Yeah, they make that explicit at the end of the four, at yeah. the very end, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's clearly that. Um, so one, uh, With first, sort of Jason and the Golden Genetic Cylinders. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so first, I just kind of point out, the name of the, the alien species is, are the Minions, and I kept thinking Minions, and yep. laughing kind of to myself <laughs> yep, exactly banana <laughs> given uh yeah, the the from the uh what was it despicable, despicable me, me yep yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> which that that would be a funny connection with the doctor uh let's talk a little bit about the the way that this episode looked it was all pretty much 80 to 90 percent 
reacting in front of a green screen for them. Yeah. Although yeah. I'm not sure if it's the same thing. They call it color separation overlay. I think that's yeah. early green screen. It is. It's, it's, it's green screen. I think the BBC traditionally used blue instead of green, but same idea. Okay. Yeah. The, but basically, instead of a lot of running through tunnels, we have, uh, instead of running through corridors, like in mm-hmm. many episodes, we have lots of sneaking through color separation overlay tunnels in this one. Yeah. Yep. Uh, apparently, they were, it, it was a budget issue, basically. Mm-hmm. that in, uh, They blew their budget on building the spaceship, the interior of the spaceships, and they didn't have money left over to build the tunnels, so they just mm-hmm. they just used color separation for them. And this is well, also a time, 1978 was a time when there was high inflation in Great Britain, and it was seriously affecting their production ability. You know, they had their budget set before the inflation hit, and all of a sudden they ran out of money because inflation. Right. Kind of right. something the government causes. Yes, yep. yes. And we'll be discussing that on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Uh, yep. Got, so, got, a, got the script already written. Yeah. In nice. fact, I'm having it reviewed by an accountant. Oh, excellent. Cool. So... I, I had to say the design of those ships. There was the nice couches, though. They they got some nice couches. They must have raided nice some sectionals. executives. Yeah, they raided some executives' office to get those. So we have this story, and it the last fourth Doctor story of this season that we talked about was the Sunmakers, in which mm-hmm. a, a, a human beings are forced to live underground by an oppressive authoritarian regime. And I'm like, that's kind of interesting that they did two stories in a row. Which are so very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the previous one wasn't humans living underground. It was humans being forced to live in a totalitarian society inside gigantic buildings so they never saw the sun. Right. Whereas okay. here, it's humans forced to, in a totalitarian society to live underground. So it's totally different. <laughs> That's yeah, true. Exactly. That, that is not at all the same thing. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I mean, that's one of the things I like about watching Classic Who is... The eras in which these were made, the, the the stories kind of reflect the general outlook of the era. And there was a lot of concern in the late 70s about totalitarianism and the Soviet Union and all that sort of stuff. And it, it kind of comes out in these in these stories. So I just thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah. And they're borrowing from other things like in the Sunmakers, uh, the idea of living in buildings that are huge. And so you never see the sun. I mean, that's I know that goes back in sci-fi at least as far as Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. Mm. Yes, the uh, agoras, is what they call them? I forget. There's a term for that, but yeah, that, th- yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of eras, now this is immediately after Star Wars. And right. apparently uh, Star Wars, they knew Star Wars was coming, and they knew there was no way they could compete with the... Um, with the special effects in Star Wars, but that wouldn't stop them from trying. And mm-hmm. so there, there are some elements of this that are said to be inspired by Star Wars, which now they would have already been in production before mm-hmm. Star Wars debuted, mm-hmm. but they knew it was coming. They knew some things about what was going to be in it. And Star Wars premiered like 10 days before this episode broadcast. And um, the explosion, the, the I mean, some of the ships, it, it is a lived-in universe like Star Wars. You know, the mm-hmm. tech isn't all spotlessly clean. And there's some similarities, I think, in spaceship design that's kind of a little Star Wars-y. But to me, everything builds to the climactic explosion of the planet that this mm-hmm. thing is at the center of. And that is, when we finally see it, it's reminiscent of the explosion of the Death Star. Right. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, Not as just, cool, but reminiscent. Yeah. Yeah. 
This so it this actually premiered in January of seventy eight, so about is seven months six, after. Yeah, but, I was gonna say six, but yeah, months. but certainly production of this show would have been after or about the time of Star Wars. And Star Wars was made in Britain, so there's a lot of probably a lot of people who knew what was coming and what was what was in it. So it's a yeah, that that would be I could see the the desire to to make it more epic like mm-hmm. that, like Star Wars mm-hmm. was that 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 uh, star spanning sort of story. Well, very very much epic because they're literally at the edge of the universe, edge of the known cosmos. Right, right. Okay, so that brings us to the science in this thing. Yeah, and um, it's interesting. I mean, they're playing with some interesting concepts here, and 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 getting them wrong at least in terms mm-hmm. of what actual science proposes. It's not impossible that the universe has an edge that you could go to and wait for new things to be created at the edge of the universe, which is what Leela and the Doctor are doing mm-hmm. at the beginning of this. By the way, it, it begins with Leela piloting the TARDIS, yeah, which is really great, you know, right? Especially since she's from a primitive culture, but she's she's been learning to to pilot the TARDIS apparently. And they arrive at the edge of everything. So they're at the edge of the universe. There's a black void beyond them. And the doctor says that new things may are just like going to spring into existence. And that is not at all what science expects. Mm-hmm. If you were to go to the edge of the visible universe, there would be more stars beyond it because of the way the universe expands. Distant regions are rushing away from us faster than the speed of light. And so every year, more and more stars vanish over the cosmic horizon. And so they'd still be there if you went to the edge of the visible universe. We know that the universe is something like at minimum 50 times larger than the visible universe because of Hmm. the way it's flat and we can detect, you know, based on the way the cosmic microwave background radiation looks, these distantly separated things had to be close enough to interact causally with each other at the Big Bang, and therefore um, the universe has to have a certain geometry that implies it's at least 50 times bigger than what we can see. Hmm. On the other hand, if you went to... It's not impossible that there would be an edge even farther out, but it's hard, It's really hard for the human mind to visualize that. We're bad with edges, because we immediately mm-hmm. want to say, what's on the other side of the edge? And um, in any event, the scenario that we see here is, is not expected by science. Also, the doctor, when they get there, something does seem to pop into existence, kind of. It, the doctor mm-hmm. describes it as a spiral nebula. And he says that it's going to collapse and form a solar system, which is why there's a planet forming around the sister spaceship, because mm. apparently it had enough mass that it started attracting other mass and is in the process of planet formation. And it has a um, slushy surface as a result, which is also unexpected, but interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem is. Spiral the solar systems do not form from spiral nebula. Um, right. The they form from solar nebulas. Spiral nebulas are something else. Back in the day, before we knew the structure of the universe, so this is in other words, back in the nineteenth century and so forth. 
it was thought that the Milky Way was basically the entire universe. We did not know that there were distant galaxies. What we mm-hmm. did know is that if we looked up in the sky with our primitive telescopes, we could see fuzzy patches, which looked like clouds, and so they were called nebula, which is the, you know, related to the word for cloud, if I, yeah. Um, but then there, we noticed there were two types of nebula. Some of them um, were clearly star formation nebulas, but then there were these other things that were spiral in shape, and so they were called the spiral nebula, and nobody knew what they were. They, they thought maybe these are just solar nebula that are here in the Milky Way galaxy that we're seeing from a certain angle, and so it's like they're in the they're they're spiraling like a disc, and as the planets are forming, and we're seeing them from the right angle, they look like spirals to us. But and there was this huge debate in it was either nineteen twenty or nineteen twenty two called the Great Debate, which was over this question. It was about the the structure of the universe, and actually both debaters were partly right and partly wrong. It turns hmm. out, but what was eventually realized is those spiral nebulas are not planetary nebulas here in the galaxy. Those are distant galaxies. And you have mm. this dramatic, whoa, those things are way farther away than we thought, and there are big gaps. Mm. So like the Andromeda galaxy, the closest big galaxy to us, Messier number 1, was one of the classic spiral nebulas, and it was thought to be here in our galaxy. But no, it's in a completely different galaxy. It's another, and the term galaxy wasn't even in use yet. They called them island universes hmm. that was the cool. proposal for what these were is they're diff- that's a different because they thought we were the whole universe so that's a different island universe it turns huh. out but in any event spiral nebulas don't turn into solar systems so that they got their science wrong here they they're referring to a real scientific concept namely a solar nebula but they're just using the wrong term for it so just to be clear are there spiral nebulas, or are all spiral nebulas just galaxies? Well, it's not impossible that you could have a solar nebula that was spiral-shaped. It's just okay. not mm-hmm. not what the term has been used to mean. Okay, okay. That's what, that's what, that's what I wanted to clarify. Um, so, yeah, and in this case, it doesn't appear out of nothing because it's been there with that, with with that the, ship. Yeah. the ship in it. Mm-hmm. So it, it must have moved there or been on the edge there. But uh, in any case, they also detect this other ship, the R1C, which they materialize aboard. Um, and it's a hundred thousand, in order to escape the nebula, they materialize on board this other ship. And it's, it turns out to be a 100,000 year old Minyan patrol ship. Uh, their civilization, the doctor recognizes it, he, that their civilization was destroyed a hundred thousand years ago on the other side of the universe. So they're way out of their place. And, there are people on board who their computer identifies the TARDIS as the timeships of the gods, you know, one of those timeships. Mm-hmm. And it turns out these, these people are 100,000 years old and have been using tech to regenerate themselves, not in the same way as, as Time Lords. Well, it's, well I, I, they, they made it sound like it was Time Lord regeneration technology, but it's yeah. not the same way the doctor regenerates where the energy comes from within him. He's got like capsules they go into that regenerates them. Okay. And yeah, it's it looks like it's based on Time Lord technology, but it doesn't necessarily affect them exactly the way it affects Time Lords. And the leader of the ship, Jackson, 
who is the Jason surrogate character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It says that they've all regenerated like a thousand times. So they apparently live for a hundred years per regeneration and then they have to regenerate. Right. And uh, we see that at the beginning where there's the, the female crew member is, is elderly, clearly made up to look elderly. And then she's regenerated into a young woman again. Yeah. So when you see all that makeup on her, it's like, okay, she's going to regenerate because <laughs> that's the only reason <laughs> yeah. they put this makeup on her. Otherwise they would have hired an old actress. Right. Yep. Right. Well, and, yeah. I mean, and, the, and they have this whole thing where they're, they're all tired. They're all like, uh, I just want the quest to end. They're on this quest, and the quest has become everything. The quest, the quest is, the, is quest. the quest. The quest is the quest. Which is nice circular. <laughs> they love tautologies on in their minion culture, I guess. Uh, apparently, and uh, yeah, and so they they're tired and they want it to end. But and 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 that kind of affects a little bit how they approach things because they they seem to be very at, at times very much wanting to uh, make the to believe that this is the end of their quest, even at times when, I mean, it, it clearly is the ship they've been looking for, but they, they're almost, how do I want to put it, almost precipitous in trying to take the solution that they've got and so that they can they can rest and relax and be done with their 100,000-year mission after all this time. Uh, so it, 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 it does come out a little bit in the story that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what, to me now, so just to lay my cards on the table, this is, an, from my perspective, this is an okay story. Mm -hmm. um, it's an, it's nothing special. It's not mm -hmm. particularly interesting, but it's not bad either. So it's just kind of an okay story. To me, the most interesting thing about it is the uh, glimpse into early Gallifreyan history that mm -hmm. it gives us. Because the doctor says that shortly after they had discovered space travel, the Gallifreyans went to this planet Minyos, and the Minions regarded them as gods, which the doctor says was all very flattering. <laughs> and they thought they could help the minions develop, so they apparently gave them technology, but including this regeneration tech. But eventually, the minions kicked them out and became warlike and destroyed each other. And the Gallifreyans realized that this wouldn't have happened if they hadn't intervened, and so it led to the Time Lord non-intervention policy that has been the doctor's bane for his entire career. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I just, uh, to me, that's the most interesting thing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, unfortunately, we don't get a flashback. We don't get to see that. Um, I'd like that to play a bigger element in the story than it does. But to me, that's the most interesting element of the story. Yeah. One, one character, uh, one of the members of that crew, Herrick is, is very angry at the doctor, you know, for the because he's a, a time lord and wants to attack him the others are less so and yeah and so so it does come out in the interactions although they they kind of diffuse that fairly quickly yeah um, also there's uh given what current continuity is for doctor who we know that tecteyun made the mm -hmm. first gallifreyan space flight and she was the one that introduced regeneration so this would be during the period that the minion intervention would have been during or very shortly after the period that Tecteyun was active. Mm -hmm. And the doctor, as the timeless child, would have been there. In fact, there's even, it's really not, but there's even a little, what you could regard as a little hint of pre-Hartnell regenerations 
because when Jackson is talking to the doctor about we've all regenerated a thousand times and it's and it's not fun, the doctor is, yeah, I know I've been through two or three of those already. Mm. And he would have only actually been through two if William Hartnell was the first doctor. Right. Wouldn't he have been first through? to second? No, first it would have been three. Yeah, first to second, second, second to third, third to, third. Third oh, to fourth. Okay, my mistake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it is interesting, you know, it, it, as we have a couple of these specials for with the 13th Doctor left, and the, that's probably the last we're going to get of the Timeless Child, I, I, I wonder if... Uh, if I don't we'll think that, so. I, I you think, think it'll eventually, it's going to come back eventually. Well, what I was going to say is it would be interesting to see if they brought in the minions into that timeless into some future timeless child related story mm-hmm. uh, for the doctor to go explore that would be kind of interesting so and it is interesting the doctors have the 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 doctors the time lords have this prime directive which is sort of like a star trek thing as well mm-hmm. and uh, and it comes up in you know as what we're talking about now in the sixth doctor with the trial of the time lord that's what he's on trial for is for violating the non-interference so uh we have this society that's on this, you know, in this uh, middle of this planet. And what we have are we have the, the descendants of the people of P7E underground. And we have the, we have so, the Oracle at the top of the society, which is essentially the computer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we have seers, then guards, and then the slaves that are called trogs. And at one point, we, the seers are revealed to not, they're not human. Are they robots? I was unclear on that. It, well, it is unclear. There's, they say that they say that the only real descendants of the minions are the guards and the trogs. So the lower two steps on the pyramid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The they say that we have evolved far beyond them, and then they take off their hoods, and underneath they have these metallic heads with three eyes, and that are like three camera eyes. And so they look like robots, but there could be something biological under there since they referred to evolving. On the other hand, evolution can mean more than biological evolution. Right. So it's unclear exactly what the seers are, but they report directly to the uh, to the computer that's tasked with guarding the cylinders. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and it's a, another of the the sort of the trope of the AI that exceeds its programming it it has a, a particular order to safeguard and then then exceeds it to to, oh, Dom, to be become fair, authoritarian after a hundred thousand years it's it's programming has become corrupt <laughs> well i was know, gonna say if, it's if like ultron a, but from avengers <laughs> well if, if this was was star trek you would know, go to the daystrom institute self-ware megalomaniacal computer storage so <laughs> you shove it in there the <laughs> as i'm holding up my lower decks mug from there yeah that's true that's true yes you shove it into the uh the oracle uh, the the storage um, yeah, I mean that you we we even see this in the uh, was it the Six Doctor story that had the robot with the underground culture being ruled by the robot? Um, was Which it one Six are you Doctor thinking of? Uh, we recently talked about this. Uh, there's there's a there was another episode uh, story that we did, and I think it was a later Doctor. It was either the sixth or the seventh Doctor where they were. It was uh people were living underground. Yes, it was the sixth Doctor. The first story of the. Uh, Trial of a Time Lord se- season, oh, Mysterious yeah, Planet. Right, right, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Ravelox. Right, Ravelox. And yeah, again, another uh, society of humans who have been forced underground to live as slaves, being ruled by a in, artificial intelligence. We, we see that several times in Doctor Who, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, I, I did like that 
they did spend some time. So they, all the money they saved on the green screen sets, they put into the spaceship miniatures effects, like, like you were talking mm-hmm. about. And so I did like some of those uh, um, shots of the ship flying, crashing into the uh, right. into the planet and sinking under the wa- liquid, waves. mushy surface of the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there yep. was some good stuff there. Uh, although somebody forgot to do the uh, the green screen on some of the, uh, the inside the bridge of the ship. Did you guys notice that there were times where where they're standing there in front of the windows that are all green? <laughs> like someone forgot yeah. to overlay the the, yeah. the shot, and no one's ever gone back and done it. That's kind of funny. Well, on the they also they saved money by using the same set for both the P seven E and the R one C. It was literally the yeah. same exact set sister ships money saving opportunity exactly (laughs) they just changed the colors and made the 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 bridge of the the p7e look creepy and all red colored and Mm -hmm. so we haven't talked much about leela and her and her in this episode and uh she she gets a couple of uh moments of of agency and when they first get on board the uh the r1c they want to attack the doctor and she as leela does Pulls out her knife and starts threatening the others, and the uh, minions have this very handy device on yeah. on their bridge that's yep. called the pacifier, right? Which, <laughs> which is not not the best name. <laughs> no, it's like that's what babies suck on, right? Yes, yeah. here's a passy. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, the now this kind of device. So what it does is it 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 it's electronic. It beams some kind of ray at you, and you don't see the ray, but mm-hmm. it basically it basically alters your brain temporarily so that you become passive and happy and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And essentially what this is, is a TASP. A TASP is a device from Larry Niven's known space series that he was writing in the 1960s. And basically it's a long distance way of beaming electricity directly into the pleasure center of someone's brain. Hmm. And so what, what you what you do if you have a TASP is you like go to a park and there are people walking around and they have their daily problems and stuff like that. And then you make someone's day by (laughs) using the TASP to directly stimulate the pleasure center of their brain. And they have this sudden just bliss, overwhelming bliss. The problem with making people's day is it's addictive. And Mm. so what will happen sometimes is is after an initial experience like that, people will decide to go and get one of Elon Musk's brain Im- interfaces where <laughs> yeah. you yeah. get a wire put directly into the pleasure center of your brain with a little socket on the outside. And then you all you have to do is plug yourself into a power socket and it's bliss. And wireheads, as they're known, don't hurt anybody. Because they don't have to go get money for drugs, they just plug themselves yeah. in. Um, but it does destroy their lives because they, mm-hmm. it, they, and this is borne out by experiments. I mean, they've done this with mice, and if if they let a mouse have a lever that it can push to directly stimulate its pleasure center, it will spend all day pushing the the lever and doing nothing oh, yeah. else, no self care, mm-hmm. no foraging for food, no finding mates, no nothing that mice normally do. And so wireheads, typically, it's like the most powerful form of addiction possible. And and they will basically, with very few exceptions, they will ruin their lives. Mm-hmm. And so having this pacifier gun 
is uh which just saying it sounds so funny (laughs) is is is, it sounds attractive but you want to be really careful and you want to make sure the crew doesn't start playing around with a pacifier (laughs) gun for fun on their off time (laughs) yeah yeah well and it could backfire if you got somebody like Leela that actually takes pleasure in violence. <laughs> right, right. She likes fighting. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it would work like on a, a ship full of Klingons, for example. Uh, <laughs> that would be. <laughs> it might, might have, yeah, it might have the opposite effect. But it would, in fact, with Leela, it turns her into you know she, she gets very pleasant and happy. His name she is. She basically Orb. gets stoned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She she looks like she's been uh, yeah partaking of some things, and uh, and then later on, I mean. She, she doesn't get a lot to do. She kind of runs around next to the doctor a lot and leads people around. But uh, I don't remember her having any particular she got significant to role. Hmm? She got to fight with the laser guns. She enjoyed that. Yeah. She did, yeah. I was going to mention they have, so the other technological device that they have is uh, called a shield gun. Mm. And it's a reasonable idea. It's like a shield. It's not a particularly big shield. But it's like a, a shield, like you'd strap to your arm in back in Jason and the Argonauts days. But it also has a laser blaster at the center of the shield. Right. Mm-hmm. And if someone fires a gun at you, you hold up your shield to block it, and it can reflect their ray back on them. And so it's, uh, it's, it's actually a pretty neat little device. Um, and Leela does get to use those, and... As usual, the doctor is not in favor of violence, but isn't constantly lecturing us about it. <laughs> yeah. And doesn't have a problem with uh, Leela using weapons when needed. He just wants to restrain her from using them unnecessarily. Mm. Uh, also, uh, another person who gets, has an inordinate amount of fun fighting with others is uh, the aforementioned Herrick. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. Yeah. He, He's been spent 100,000 years cooped up on that ship. He wants to run around and start blasting some things. So. Yeah, I have him. So there are four of these astronauts. There's Jackson. And until mm-hmm. they made the Jason connection at the end, I'm like, why does he have such a human name? Because yeah. Jackson, I mean, that's just a straightforward English name. Yeah. Um, son of Jack is where it originally came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we have Hedrick, who I have listed in my notes as Hedrick the Reckless. Mm-hmm. And Orf and Tala is the woman who regenerates. So there's four of them. Yes, and uh, so they 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 have this battle. There's a true. They they lead a slave revolt. Then there's this truce that gets offered by the Oracle. Because uh, what what the uh, the the crew of the R one C want is these race bank cylinders, and they apparently mm-hmm. hold. All of, it's all of the genetic. It's a genetic, a gene bank. It's all the genetic material needed to restart the Minyan civilization on Minyas Two because their original planet got destroyed, and that's what what this was all about. Is they they want these race bank. They don't really care about the descendants, by the way. It, and in fact, at the end, the doctor has to force them to take all mm-hmm. of these uh, slaves who revol- revolted, take them with yeah. them. Yeah, and uh, if I were the doctor, it's like, okay, see these people, they're living gene banks. <laughs> So yeah. more genetic diversity for the race if you take them too. <laughs> right, right. Kind of does, just not in those exact words, but he kind of yeah. basically says, these are your people. Uh, and with the, when they, whenever the TARDIS is on board a ship and someone complains that the doctor has got too many people on the ship, I always think like, well, why not just put them all in the TARDIS? Because apparently the TARDIS has some sort of dimensional bubble thing where its mass mm-hmm. does not affect whatever ship it's on. Which yes. operates inconsistently based on the needs of the plot, because uh, yeah. you do, if you turn the TARDIS, knock it over, it'll knock over the people inside of it. So there's some kind mm-hmm. of, 
you know, transference of kinetic energy and possibly gravitation um, between right. them. Right. Right. Yeah. And there, there's, you can see online where, you know, fans have kind of speculated, you know, the TARDIS, if, if it was not cloaked and it wasn't in a dimensional bubble, would weigh, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons. I mean, it just because they're right. massive. Yeah. But, you know, but, it, but the little police box, you know, three people can pick it up. <laughs> Sometimes. Right. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they can't. Uh, so in any case, they lead the slave revolt, and then the the oracle offers this truce, and it says, "Well, okay, I'll give you the race bank cylinders, even though it's that's its primary mission. If you leave the the P seventy the this planet alone, and as you mentioned, it turns out it's a it's a it's a red herring. That in fact, it's not the race bank cylinders, but they're fission grenades with two thousand megatons of yield each." Which is huge, <laughs> not, uh, yeah, but not necessarily for nuclear bombs. Yeah, although the uh, we recently talked about this in Secrets of Tech, there was a Soviet design mm-hmm. for a the mega bomb, Tsar Bomba, Tsar Bomba. That was how big was that? I think that was a few hundred megatons. Yeah, uh, we don't. Well, I'd have to go back and look to see, but that and Ivy Mike, um, which was a U.S. test bomb. Mm-hmm. We don't really know exactly how big they were because, like in Ivy Mike's case, it destroyed the machines. It was bigger than expected because they didn't anticipate mm-hmm. the way lithium acts in right. these reactions, and it destroyed the um, equipment that was going to measure how big it was. Mm-hmm. There was a just a sort of a little diversion here. Mm-hmm. They there was a recent re- reveal of a a film that the Soviets took of their testing of Zar- the one Tsar Bomba that they set off, which had a yield of 50 to 58 megatons when mm. they exploded it. And it was a theoretical mm-hmm. yield of, a, of 100. Uh, and yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty impressive. <laughs> what I sure. want to know is if those are fission grenades, what is the, what is the, you know, what is the reactive matter they're using in there? Because all the standard <laughs> elements won't get that big with tiny little handheld devices like this. Hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, those things at most weigh a couple of pounds, and and nothing is stable that that I'm aware of that that you can have two pounds and it'll be at critical mass and produce an explosion that big. Maybe they're bigger on the inside. No, well, that could be. <laughs> yeah, and maybe they have a gravity bubble so that you can pick them up. <laughs> yep, yep. The problem they're, they're, they're is the power, they're at the power of plot. I yeah, mean. yeah, right. Yeah, the problem is these things. They look exactly like the the genetic cylinders. Right. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. <laughs> now, what I would have done is, instead of just having this truce, I would have had a little bit of negotiation and say, look, we're, we're here. We have the location for Minyos 2 for our new homeworld. This is in keeping with your function. You know, we need to get these genetic cylinders to Minyos 2 so we can restart the race. And we can't get you out of the planet because you've now got this planet around you. Mm-hmm. So we need you to give us the cylinders so we can complete our joint mission. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the computer would say, you're right. This is my mission. This is what I've been programmed for. Please take the cylinders. And then after they've taken the cylinders, it's revealed that the computer has been crazy for a lot yep. long, and, 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 you know, and is actually not rational and is determined to hang on to the real cylinders no matter what. And so she had made these fission grenades to look like cylinders in case of an event like this. Right. 
Yeah, it wouldn't have taken much in the course of four episodes to insert a little bit of well, like that. Well, especially because they had problems with these four episodes under running. Yeah. They the the story is a little thin and so they they didn't have enough footage uh to make the to fill up the four episode slots and so they had to rather than cut footage which which is what happens when you overrun, they had to extend things. Which is one of the reasons that the recaps at the beginnings of episodes two, three, and four yeah. are much longer than the normal recaps we get right. because they're padding out the running time. Yeah, they were like two minutes each. They were long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then like there was a couple of scenes that just seemed completely irrelevant, like uh, when they were trying to sneak into the P seventy ship and in the uh, mining cars, and there was a whole thing mm-hmm. where they had like Leela and the doctor were hanging you know literal cliffhanger and had to be pulled up and, and then they pull, then they walk away I was like okay that was <laughs> that just seemed like like you said padding mm-hmm. um also um they they really missed an opportunity when they introduced the pacifier because that is a fascinating I mean like I mentioned with Larry Niven's exploration of that same concept there's a lot of dramatic potential there Mm. But they just use it to calm down um, Leela and Herrick, and mm-hmm. then it's yeah. out of the story. And it's like, no, dude, you've got uh, something that will really help you drive your plot right there. Yeah. Right. Like, pick it up and carry it out into the into the tunnels. Mm-hmm. So the, there is an interesting exchange between the Doctor and the Oracle when, they, when he confronts it, and uh, he basically tells it, like, look, you're not a god. And this kind of refers back to the Time Lords being considered gods. Mm-hmm. And the oracle says, gods, there are no gods but me. Have I not created myself? Do I not rule? Am I not all-powerful? All and the doctor's like, no. Well, yeah, here, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in this little place, but you're just another machine with megalomania, uh, referring to the uh, the Daystrom Institute storage all for the, megalomaniacal. All, all the other megalomaniacal machines we've seen on Doctor Who, going all right. the way back yep. to the first Doctor and the war machines. Mm-hmm. Right. We, exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, he has a lot of experience with, with those. So the the Oracle gave him the fake cylinders, but when the Doctor figures it out, he kind of brings it back, but he doesn't just say, uh, here are the, you know, here, you know like, switch them out. He gives them the the fission grenades and doesn't tell them that they're the real ra- the race banks. He says, no, wait, don't take those. Those are the fission grenades, knowing exactly that they'll think he's lying to them. And so he doesn't yeah. have to lie to them in order to get them to take it. Which it's, is... it's like the fugitive doctor. Oh, no, don't pull that trigger. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and so or uh, the seventh they... doctor. Oh, no, Davros, don't activate the hand of Omega. Stop. Stop. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, he, does, he doesn't have to lie. Uh, so he reverse, reverse psychologizes them and then they they run away and uh, the, the planet blows up and they s- basically surf the shockwave out of the nebula and then head off to Minyos 2. And we do end with the Doctor very explicitly, like, don't, we don't want to miss this, calling him Jace, the Captain Jason, calling Jackson yeah. Jason, and then has to explain to Leela about the, the Argonauts. And, and uh, how they found a golden fleece at the edge of the world. Right. Hmm. And then wonders if it's a premonition. So... Is this all take place before, again, like in, in Earth's past? Possibly. Yeah, that's, I guess it's possible. Well, 
any case that and that's how the the story ends so uh any other notes father cory um just no i mean this is one of these episodes i didn't remember i know i'd seen it before but i didn't remember it and it's just kind of like you said jimmy it's, it's okay episode it, it's there's a lots yeah. of running there's lots of shooting and yeah about it oh i, I did like uh uh, someone asked, you know, are you a god? And of course, the immediate mindset was, you know, if yeah. someone asks you if you're, <laughs> if you're god, god, you, you say, say yes. <laughs> Ghostbusters. Uh, I didn't mention canine. Canine was is is always fun in these, yep. and he gets some good quips in there, in- including the binder clips to his ears to attach them to the computer. <laughs> yeah, Literal like, binder like, clips. Uh, yeah, he's got these little radar dish ears that they put the clips on, and they still he still waggles his ears back and forth as he's analyzing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yeah, or the doctor at the beginning says, uh, that's a spiral nebula, or I'm a budgie's uncle. And he says, yeah. correct on the identification of astronomical phenomena, but wrong on the rel- yeah. <laughs> on the family relation. <laughs> family relation <laughs> negative. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and the doctor tells him to shut up. Uh, Jimmy, any other notes for you? So there's a scene in this. Um, now, this came out in, what was it, 1978? 78. Yep. And the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory came out in 1971. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where uh, the main characters are in this big vertical metallic tube, oh, and they've right. been binging on fizzy lifting drinks that cause them to float upward through the tube. Right. And here we kind of get the reverse image of that, because as they're getting down to the center of the planet, the they encounter a similar vertical tube and the doctor wants Leela and this um uh trog named Edas Edas yeah. to step into the tube even though there's no nothing for them to stand on. And he says and they object and he says, um, well look, we're at the center of the planet, so all the mass is pulling up on us and there's no gravity here. And well, okay, that would be true. If you were at the dead center of a planet, but number one, Edith lives down here. He yeah. should be familiar with this already if it's a real effect. And secondly, it's not actually, gravity wouldn't work like this. You wouldn't be tethered to the floor of the tunnel. Mm. And then you step one foot over this barrier and suddenly there's no gravity. But they do. And then they <laughs> float down. He, the doctor even has them push so that they'll float, push up, so that the, yeah. by Newton's law, every uh, equal and opposite reaction, they then float down to the bottom of the tube. And it's very visually reminiscent of the scene from Willy Wonka, and I suspect yeah. it was um, patterned after that. Also, there's some, you know, there's some nice lines, as usual. Early on, once uh, the doctor realizes they're aboard a minion ship, he turns to Leela and says, Have you ever heard of the Flying Dutchman? You know, which is hmm. the famous lost ship that's unable to complete its mission. Mm-hmm. And and she says, no, I haven't. And the doctor says, pity, I always wondered who he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was good. That was good. Um, yeah, the, the fourth doctor is a Wonka-like fa- uh, ca- character, isn't he? That, that would mm-hmm. be, um, yeah, it, uh, very mysterious, on the side of the angels, occasionally dark and unpredictable. Yes, and very odd behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Though there's there's never been a journey, a psychedelic journey in Doctor Who where they show the audience a chicken getting its head cut off, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, that ride to that tunnel is the, <laughs> that's always the, the creepiest that's thing. scariest thing if you're a kid. <laughs> no, oh, it was yeah. so scary when I was a kid. Didn't want to look at it. 
so uh, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Tara H., Francis B., Carla K., Marilyn K., and Kip C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And, of course, we'd like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think of this fourth Doctor story called Underworld. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, Deep Breath. That's right. As we've said, we're going back to look at at our beginnings where we started this podcast with the 12th Doctor. We're going to talk about the 12th Doctor stories again after all this time, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. So until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Don. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and the quest is the quest. (laughs) And once again, (laughs) I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, the StarQuest is the (laughs) StarQuest. 